Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Five. In this country, particularly for the less well-off and younger generation starting out is bloody hard. This could mean that the first big economic headline of 2024, Alison, is Britain went into recession. The schools I've gone where tech is used with extreme caution are simply more effective. The lessons are more exciting. The children do better. We have people in the Home Office paid for by our taxes extolling a religious dress code. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's the same old, same old Alison, with the Tories in their now familiar pattern of barely managed meltdown. So sick are you of the failings of the party of government, so stale to your ears is their message, that you've taken to inventing a new game to help us get through and endure the tedium of the Prime Minister's TV appearances. (laughs) Rishi Bingo, copyright planet normal. That's the game, Alison, invented by you, where players knock back a shot of tequila, a schnifter of sherry, or a wee dram of whiskey every time the Prime Minister uses one of his stock phrases. Stick to the plan! If we stick to the plan, we can start to deliver change. If you don't have a plan, you can't deliver any change. Labour simply don't have a plan. And as of yesterday, when inflation failed to fall, having risen last month, inflation doesn't fall in a straight line. But we're sticking to the plan. (laughs) We actually have to be a bit careful, Alison, talking about politics on this week's Planet Normal. That's because today, Thursday, the day this episode is released into the wild, there are two by-elections happening in Kingswood in South Gloucestershire and Wellingborough in Northamptonshire. We can talk about the upcoming by-election in Rochdale on February 29th and the row about anti-Semitism that has sparked within the Labour Party that you wrote about in The Telegraph. We can also talk about the economy New inflation numbers and fears that an imminent announcement may declare that the UK economy tipped into recession during the second half of last year. But let's start, Alison, by discussing something else you wrote about in your latest Telegraph column on Wednesday. Link in the show notes to this episode. What do you think, co-pilot? Now, don't hold back. Tell us what you really think (laughs) about the UK Home Office celebrating World Hijab Day. (laughs) If you think that's outrageous... Let listeners just contemplate the text I got from my best beloved early this morning on the 14th of February. Does that date ring any bells, Halligan? I've been reading Christopher Marlowe, The Passionate Shepherd. Of course it does. (laughs) So I got this text because he's in the States and I thought, oh, that's so sweet. He's remembered. And I opened the text and it said, green bins plus small brown bin outside early this morning. Sharpish. And then he said... It's 2.30am here and I remembered I hadn't told you the bin schedule. <laughs> so I think that's... Have you got time to pop round with a card? Such a romantic him indoors. <laughs> I know. But from that disappointment, I thought you'd let me have a little therapeutic rant attached to the notion of World Hijab Day. And I think, Liam, 
something that's becoming clearer, I think, to the citizens of Planet Normal is that the British people, British culture, British values are an incredibly low priority for most of our institutions. I mean, there's almost too many stories to pick out, but the Telegraph did have an astonishing one this week saying that the army has become so woke, so obsessed with recruiting people from diverse backgrounds that it is set to relax its security checks on applicants from overseas. Young white British males, the backbone of our country's defence for centuries, are war cemeteries, Liam, full of the fallen bodies of white young men. No point in applying. And then yesterday, also linked really to the Home Office, we had a story in the paper which was from a Planet Normal listener who chose to remain anonymous. It's a fantastic tip-off, Liam. The Home Office is paying for 16,000 homes for 58,000 asylum seekers, despite, as you know, co-pilot, as king of housing, terrible housing shortage for British families. But Serco and other companies paid for by us, the taxpayer, are offering landlords five-year guaranteed full rent deals. Now, Now, why is this? Well, basically, the government is desperate to get the asylum seekers out of the expensive hotels before the general election so Rishi Sunak can look like he's kept a pledge about reducing the use of hotels. So taxpayers' money is being spent on essentially bribing private landlords not to rent to ordinary British families who are desperate for housing, but to let Serco and others gobble up all those spare properties to accommodate illegal migrants. Absolute scandal. And you can read that terrific story by Charles Hymas, our Home Affairs editor. But yes, Liam, let's just talk about that thing you said at the top. We have the Home Office inviting staff to celebrate World Hijab Day. And our excellent colleague, Stephen Edgington, discovered that the Home Office's Islamic Network, that's a group for Muslim civil servants, had enthusiastically described the hijab as being, quote, brought to women as a way of protection. Now, co-pilot, my hackles rose because most British women today would shudder at that kind of sexist condescension. It's taken almost a century for women in our country to get equal treatment. And guess what? We no longer allow men to dictate what women wear. Barristers can no longer accuse young women who've been raped of not wearing modest clothing. And that was still happening when I was in my 20s, if you can believe it. And yet today we have people in the Home Office paid for by our taxes, extolling a religious dress code, a religious dress code, by the way, which young women in Iran are now being punished for and dying for taking off the veil. Now, Liam, I've got no objection to any woman who wants to cover her head. That's absolutely a personal choice. But government departments paid for by us have no business commenting on female attire, let alone celebrating head covering, which so many women in the world are desperate to throw off. So that's a rather long way of saying something that's really upsetting me at the moment. So many examples of the British people, our culture, our values, us being treated as second-class citizens in our own country makes me see red. I think it's very interesting, Alison, because just listening to you there, I was thinking that five years ago, maybe even three or two years ago, 
a lot of people listening to that would have said, oh, Alison, you're just being mad, you're being mean, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that's the case now. I think polite society's view has changed in your direction. I really do. I mean, the French wouldn't put up with, you know, one of the institutions of government having a world hijab day, would they? I mean, no way, because they have a secular state and they don't want signs of religion involved with the state. And I think you've really put your finger on something here. This will absolutely offend a lot of people, not least because of the plight of, as you say, young women in Iran who literally are beaten up because they might want to take off a hijab. And of course, it's up to the women involved if they want to wear a hijab. I wouldn't stop Muslim women from wearing a hijab if they work in Whitehall. But I do accept your view, and I think I agree with you, that for taxpayers to be funding something like this, something that is so divisive because of the hijab representing different things to different people, not just people from different ethnicities or from different generations, but within the same ethnicity and within the same generation, that I think you've really put your finger on something. But let's just talk briefly about the economy segueing Mm. on, because yesterday, Wednesday, a number came out, an inflation number, which showed that the consumer price index in January was 4% higher than in January 2023. In other words, inflation is at 4%. That's still double the Bank of England's target. Mm. It is very heavily down, though, from 11-odd percent back in October 2022. But what's going to happen today, Thursday, the day Planet Normal is released, we don't know the number yet. But as those by-elections that we mentioned at the top begin, as voters go to the polls from 7 a.m. in the morning, at 7 a.m., the Office for National Statistics are going to release some GDP numbers, like the size of the overall economy, which could easily show, and I think most likely will show, that the UK actually went into recession in the second half of last year. A recession, of course, is two successive quarters of economic contraction. Mm -hmm. And if that happens... And the, the Tories have got this kind of, you know, electoral strategy to the extent that they have one. Stick to the plan, Halligan. Stick to the plan. Yeah, stick to the plan. <laughs> They're going to go long on the election, you know, delay it to September, October, November, in order that the Bank of England can get some interest rate cuts in, in order that they can get some tax cuts in, in order, in their view, that the economy can improve as we escape, hopefully, this cost of living crisis and sort of post-lockdown malaise. This could mean that the first big economic headline of 2024, Alison, is Britain went into recession. And that's not good for the Tories at all. No, just when they could do with a bit of a fillet. But I've just been, because I knew I was going to have the pleasure of picking your capacious cranium, uh, our (laughs) resident economics grandmaster. I've never heard it called that before. (laughs) (laughs) That was Mrs. Scum, a character in Monty Python. I think the album was matching tie and hanky, or it might have been poking the eye with a sharp stick for Python aficionados. Do carry on. I like to think that my carefully collated list of economics questions gets me called Mrs. Scum. But anyway, (laughs) so GDP growth, as far as I can see, it's flat. And such growth as there has been is fueled by immigration or population growth, as uh, Michael Grove said cryptically on the Laura Koonsberg show. But 
Something that caught my eye, Liam, was that uh, was about productivity. So the UK has gone from near the top of productivity in 1997 to 2010 to near the bottom 2010 to 2024. What's been happening in that time? Well, I'd say just on the GDP, yeah, population growth, to use a euphemism, has pushed up GDP. But of course, it doesn't push up GDP per head by definition. And GDP per head is the key sort of metric of living standards. What's also true to say is if the government borrows a load of money, which it has been, and then spends it, that generates transactions in the economy, that generates growth. And all they've actually done is borrowed money. So they've borrowed growth from the future because they're going to have to pay that money back at some stage. So there's a lot of that going on. Productivity is the kind of efficiency of the economic engine, the amount of outputs you get for the amounts of inputs that you put in, inputs being labor, capital, land, and and so on. And our productivity is pretty low in the UK. That's largely because we have had such heavy immigration. So businesses haven't been incentivized to invest in capital because they can just invest in more labor and cheap labor at that. That Mm -hmm. certainly was the case during the freedom of movement years from 1992 onwards until well, until very recently, of course. Also, even though our public sector is only at most a quarter, basically a fifth of our economy, that's the public sector, productivity in the private sector has actually gone up mm. because the lack of investment in labour-saving technology that I mentioned has been offset by an adoption of technology in general, which British companies are actually quite good at a lot of the time in certain sectors. So productivity in the private sector has gone up quite sharply. But overall productivity growth is flat because productivity in the public sector, which is only a fifth of the economy, has been so bad and it's fallen so much that it's dragged down the universal, you know, across the board number for the whole economy when it comes to productivity. Mm. Our public sector productivity is just crazy. You know, the amount of operations we're doing, the amount of passports we're getting issued, the amount of probate cases that are being solved. Crikey, that's a terrible problem, what's going on with probate. Given the number of people and the amount of money that we're paying as a state for those services, they've all plunged. The performance indicators across the public sector have absolutely plunged, but no one's allowed to talk about it because we've got to clap them all on our doorstep and tell them all what great job that they're doing. And we've got to give them bonuses just for doing their job, something that we've been talking about this week, haven't we? So Mm. productivity is an issue. And another big reason that we need to really up our productivity is that there is in the UK a big skills shortage. Yes, we have in some sectors some of the most incredible people. We have some of the most incredible scientists. We have some of the most incredible people programming online and video games, a huge growth sector, by the way. We have some of the most incredible people when it comes to the arts and films, a major export. We have some of the most incredible people when it comes to education and indeed manufacturing. We're still a top 10 manufacturer. We do a lot of high-tech manufacturing and we do it very, very well but across the board we still have almost a million vacancies in this economy why is that because of something that economists call geographic and occupational mismatch the geographic mismatch is that the people often live in the parts of the country where the work isn't needed and where the work is needed they can't afford to live right so that's geographic mismatch even more endemic in the uk is occupational mismatch The people who are available for work simply don't have the skills that the firms with the vacancies need. 
We've never really got our apprenticeship system back up and running after it was hollowed out in the 70s and 80s. We've never really done vocational education well in this country for a long time. These qualifications were launched called T-levels. They never really took off. The apprenticeship levy, it's been badly designed. It has the wrong incentive structures. We desperately need to get hold of this skills issue because we've got so many smart youngsters who are prime to soak up skills, to soak up knowledge so they make, can make a decent living. And for so many of them, there are some good graduate apprenticeships, degree apprenticeships and so on now, but the numbers are tiny, tiny, tiny compared to the number of excellent youngsters available right across the country. I think this is one of the most important things that the government faces, one of the most important issues, and we won't solve our productivity problem until we solve our training and skills problem and until we solve our productivity problem, we're not going to escape this kind of low growth, high tax stasis that we're in, this kind of low growth trap. Because the lower we grow, the less tax revenue there is, the more tax rates have to go up to pay for public services. And that disincentivizes, discourages investment, which discourages and stymies growth. I think skills and productivity in particular are the key to unlocking all that but it's something, it's so unfashionable. The government doesn't seem to want to address these issues. It's all filed in the too hard tray, Alison, and nobody wants to touch it. <laughs> it seems to me that what we've seen is the government lazily relying on increasing net immigration and counting on GDP looking like it's going up. And, and it's the case, Liam, isn't it, is that if they can slightly massage these numbers, then the OBR will say, oh, yes, you've got a bit more headroom now because you let in 745,000 people last year, so our prediction will be X, so you can now make some tax cuts. So it seems to me to be this, whatever the opposite is, of a virtuous circle. But I've got a Velma stat for you. We haven't heard from Velma for a while, oh, have we? Oh, Velma. <laughs> These pesky kids. I've got my glasses on and my orange polar neck. My God, it's the fairground operator. <laughs> so... <laughs> A typical first-time buyer in London must now save for 31 years for a deposit on their first property, and that's twice as long as it took in 2003, which was just a little bit after I bought with my then partner a flat for £68,950. So beneath those big economic numbers, the headlines you're talking about is the life for ordinary people and particularly younger people starting out, isn't it? I mean, what we're talking about, the government could say, oh, we've got this and we've got that. But the truth is, Liam, that to get any quality of life now in this country, particularly for the less well-off and the younger generation starting out, is bloody hard, isn't it? It is. And of course, most people won't save for a deposit to any degree because in London and the South East, two thirds now of first time buyers are reliant on the bank of mum and dad. And that turns our private housing market from the genuine source of social mobility and progress, which it was when my parents bought their first home. They were first generation homeowners. And when I bought my first home as well in the mid 90s, now the housing market is a source not of social mobility and progress. It's a source of social rancor and social immobility, because to those that hath, they will get 
to paraphrase the Bible, this is deeply unfair when you're competing with other people in your peer group for those jobs. You can be just as good as the job or even better, and yet you're paying you know, your mate rent to live in his or her spare room because their parents had 250 grand in the bank to give your mate a deposit and your parents don't have that. And this is a major, major problem. And I don't think any of these changes that Michael Gove is making are going to help at all. What we need to do, it's a long conversation, but we need to absolutely make sure that the house building market is competitive, which it isn't. It's an oligopoly, in my view. We need to make a lot more land available for housing, not necessarily even in the Greenbelt. The state owns a huge amount of land, particularly in cities and towns, that could easily be used for house building, could be given to small and medium-sized builders for a song, so then they can produce houses that are relatively affordable. And just on your immigration point, Alison, I do think there's change in the air, and I wrote about it last Sunday in my Telegraph column, The Economic Agenda, and again, the link will be in the show notes to this episode, there's a guy called David Miles, who I know quite well, who's been on the Monetary Policy Committee and he's now at the OBR. He's very much an establishment economist with all the trimmings and bells and whistles. But I know, because I've known him for a long time, inside his establishment exterior, there is actually quite an interesting, independent and quite mischievous mind. And David Miles wrote in The Telegraph, actually, last week, that he doesn't think that immigration always and everywhere is a net positive. Now, you know, to Planet Normal listeners, you know, no shit, Sherlock. You know, of course there are downsides as well as upsides at the, given the pace of immigration that we've got at the moment. But for somebody of the po-faced sort of elitist policymaking establishment to acknowledge that, given that the conventional wisdom for so many years in the Treasury, the Bank of England and the OBR has been, yeah, let's just have lots and lots of immigration. The plebs can handle it. It's not going to affect us living in Surrey. We just need the people. We just need more growth. Big business wants it. Freedom of movement, European Union membership, rah, rah, rah. Mm. For David Miles to acknowledge that there may be a natural limit to immigration and actually immigration at the pace we've got at the moment can undermine living standards because of the lack of infrastructure, school places, hospital places, and so on. And also really tackling the holy of holies of the pro-immigration economics, which most economists subscribe to. David Barr's even saying that immigration may not even be good for our public finances, because even though you, you need lots of younger workers to replace our ageing workforce and pay for their pensions. That's always been a very strong pro-immigration argument. David Miles is saying, yeah, but the cost of the extra services, the extra provision at this pace could actually offset the fiscal benefits of having a younger population. So I think the debate is starting to change. It is starting to become more realistic. I don't think for one second that the UK is an inherently chauvinistic, anti-immigrant country. I don't think that at all. None of the polling shows that. There has been concern, though, particularly at the lower and middle end of the income spectrum, that the benefits of immigration and the costs of immigration are being disproportionately and unfairly distributed across different parts of society and different regions of the country. And so I was interested that David Miles said that. Which gives us a nice segue, Liam, into another of perhaps the biggest story of the week. And I'm going to say a name to you, which I think will ring a big bell, Gillian Duffy. 
Gillian Duffy, that bigoted woman. Yes, so Rochdale, which is in the news this week for a different reason, but I would argue not a different reason, a very related reason. So in 2010, Gordon Brown, then the Prime Minister, was I think probably on the campaign trail. It was April 2010. He was in Rochdale and Gillian Duffy, a nice local lady, basically said she was concerned about the effect the speed of immigration on her town and the consequences for the community. And Gordon Brown went away and muttered Scottishly, oh, you know, some bigoted woman. And of course, that caused a huge kerfuffle and great anger, actually, against Gordon Brown. Now, I would say that Mrs. Duffy, God bless her, I don't know if she's still with us, but of course, she was quite right, because the population of Rochdale now is almost a third Muslim. And listeners will know that Azar Ali, Labour's candidate in the Rochdale by-election, told a meeting of Lancashire Labour that Israel had allowed 1,200 of her citizens to be murdered so that Israel could have the, quotes green light to do what they liked in Gaza. And uh, an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory being passed on to a room full of people and what was just as bad, even worse, is that none of the many Labour members at the meeting apparently raised any objections. In fact, Liam, we might say that some of them, that Mr Ali made the comments because he knew that they would go down a storm with some of his confreres in the party, that due hatred would go down extremely well with certain Labour members. Now, Keir Starmer, you can talk to me about this, did hesitate before saying that Azar Ali wouldn't be the party's candidate in the coming by-election. And we could speculate that Sakir is between a rock and a hard place. He has a Jewish wife, Jewish family, attends a liberal synagogue, the Starmers do. And since then, just to bring us up to date, Graham Jones, another Labour parliamentary candidate who was present at the meeting, has also been suspended. And just as we're recording, it emerged that a gentleman called Munsif Dad, a Labour councillor in Hindburn, has also been talked to by Labour Party figures about his attendance at that contentious gathering. And Guido Fawkes, we've got a lot of time on Planet Normal for this excellent mischief-making journalist. Guido Fawkes, has been hinting, Liam, a rather more senior Labour figure was present at the meeting and also did not express disgust or disquiet. I'm going to say, I'm going to hand over to you, co-pilot, but I would say that this shows now that Labour, which long ago said it wanted to rub the Tories' noses in immigration and diversity, is now potentially being eaten by its own diversity dragon. It is very interesting, the Muslim vote in the UK, and it is increasingly seen as a block vote. The Telegraph's been reporting on the Vote Muslim website, which is really, I think, quite anti-democratic when leaders of a certain religion or people within a certain religion try to get people to vote along religious lines. That's kind of tribal, and that's not what happens in a modern democracy. It's certainly not what should happen in a modern democracy. But the Muslim vote is very interesting now, we have about 4 million-odd Muslims in the UK, according to the latest numbers that I've seen. That's about 65 or 7% of the population. That's quite sizable. A recent survey poll 
said that 60% of Muslims would routinely vote Labour. That's down from 86% as recently as 2021. And that really does speak to the impact of the Israel-Palestine debate mm. on local politics in the UK. And of course, this Rochdale by-election is going to be incredibly interesting, not least because of the presence of, well, he goes by the, the sobriquet of Gorgeous George, mm. doesn't he? George Galloway, the veteran Labour MP, a huge advocate of Palestinian rights over many, many years. He's been to Palestine. He's been to Gaza many, many times. A real darling of Britain's Muslim community for that reason. It was George Galloway, of course, who unseated the Blairite star Una King mm. from Bethnal Green and Bow. He was Bethnal Green and Bow MP in East London, my old stomping ground from 2010 to 2015. He could easily come through the middle in Rochdale to cook Labour's goose because of course Labour haven't really got a candidate there are three people who used to be <laughs> yes. in the Labour party so under various guises including the reform candidate who's the ex-Labour MP Simon Dangchuk yeah but this could be a very very interesting by-election the Tories actually will do quite well not least because Labour are getting hammered by their traditionally Muslim supporters who are abandoning them for the very reason that you've been mentioning, Starmer's stance on Israel and also George Galloway's, I'd call it opportunism, but he really is, whatever you think of him, and I know he's absolutely not your favourite person, Alison, and I know you and he would disagree hugely on Israel-Palestine and, and me and him as well, but you have to admire the guy's rhetorical power mm. and his nose for a political weak point, right? Absolutely. He has great charisma and stature, as you say. I mean, you know, we are polar opposites politically, but I can see he kind of conjures up memories of the likes of sort of Tony Benn and so on in in the kind of power he has in being able to stir people up. I mean, something that's interesting, Liam, of course, is this has put Starmer now in a very, very difficult position because his claim was he'd come in after the Corbyn era, purge the party of the, you know, Islamist extremist element, anti-Semitism was banished, all was back to being a nice, respectable party. But of course, the events of the past few days have been really calling that into account now. And listeners will know we've seen really very, very worrying growth in anti-Semitic incidents, not only those big marches with Chancellor from the River to the Sea on the Saturday pro-Palestine marches through London, which are starting to get on a lot of people's nerves, but this week, just a randomly Soho theatre, a so-called comedian called Paul Curry, basically was incredibly abusive to an Israeli member of the audience because he failed to applaud the Palestinian flag. There was a pro-Israeli fundraiser hosted by the distinguished author, spectator, columnist Douglas Murray. That was cancelled by another West End theatre after staff allegedly received threats. This is a very upsetting one, a Jewish chaplain at Leeds University. The, the university is a kind of hotbed of very frightening attacks we've seen or, or worrying fear amongst Jewish students. But this guy, Rabbi Zakaria Deutsch, his wife and their two small children have been moved a few days ago to a safe location on police advice after receiving death threats over the rabbi's role as a reservist for the Israel Defence Force. And finally, and, and not least, a former guest of Planet Normal, Stephen Pollard, great guy, distinguished journalist, former editor of the Jewish Chronicle. Now, Stephen, I don't know if you saw it, Liam, Stephen tweeted that he'd been on a couple of 
online dating sites. And you said after October the 7th, some of the profiles on the dating site started to show the Palestinian flag. I didn't think much of it, says Stephen. More recently, many profiles say no Zionists. It is now, it seems, a normal thing for people to declare publicly that they refuse to consider dating a Jew, which is, of course, what no Zionist means. This is where we now are, says Stephen Pollard. These are dark times. I mean, any of those incidents, Liam, they could have been happening in Nazi Germany, couldn't they? And I'm not saying it's being fostered because I think Sakir Starmer has held the line relatively well. But the problem is that this ghastly anti-Semitism has risen up from the dripping caves of the internet and it's it's on the loose now and we are seeing it poisoning our politics. And just to say, Liam, that trending on Twitter last night when I looked was Starmer out. So the leader of a party which has been phenomenal, doing phenomenally well up to now in the polls, they want him out because he is insufficiently anti-Israel. These are worrying times, aren't they? I'm Helena Morrissey, and I've worked in investments for over three decades. I'm also the mother of nine. And now I'm working with Telegraph Money, your new and complete guide to being better off. Whether it's paying for your children's education or navigating the career ladder, I'm here to help you make the best decisions for you and your loved ones. You'll find valuable insights and expert opinion, plus a range of useful tools and calculators. Search Telegraph Money today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, who remembers the cult TV series Peep Show starring David Mitchell and Rob Webb as Mark and Jez? Two lads sharing a flat, both of them ordinary weirdos. On air from 2003 to 2015, Peep Show remains Channel 4's longest-running comedy. Now, one of the main Peep Show stars alongside Mitchell and Webb and Olivia Colman was Sophie Winkleman, who played Big Suze, the fantasy love interest at various points of both Mark and Jez, described by both as a mental posho. Sophie Winkleman's acting experience goes way beyond Peep Show. She's appeared in countless TV series and dramas, plays and films on both sides of the Atlantic, most recently appearing alongside Hugh Grant and Olivia Colman in Wonka, a prequel of the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory early 1970s classic, with Gene Wilder, of course. Now, in recent years, countless Peep Show fans have been astonished to see Big Sue's popping up on the balcony at Buckingham Palace, sitting in the posh seats last May at the coronation of King Charles, no less. That's because back in 2009, Sophie Winkleman married Lord Frederick Windsor, whose father, Prince Michael of Kent, is first cousin to our late Queen Elizabeth. The couple now have two young daughters, and Sophie's the first female patron of the educational charity School Home Support. 
It's in that context, as a mother and a campaigner, that Sophie Winkleman, or Sophie Windsor to use her married name, has been publicly taking a stand against what she describes as the overwhelming use of technology in schools, while calling for a ban against under-16s using both social media and smartphones. Knowing that Sophie's long been a Planet Normal fan, I invited her aboard the rocket to discuss these vitally important issues. Sophie Winkleman, great to have you here on Planet Normal. Thank you for having me, Liam. Be nice. I'm scared. I don't do things like this. <laughs> You're, of course, well known as somebody who was in Peep Show, the cult hit series, Sophie. But before we come on to Peep Show and the other work that you're doing, tell us about the campaign that you've been trying to get off the ground. Recently, I read a piece by you all about the downsides to green-based learning in schools. You thinking, Sophie, that we should get back to paper and pencil, crayons and the three R's. Yes, Liam, I feel that digital learning is a huge problem. And That's being confirmed by many reports coming out and big countries like China are dramatically rowing back on tech in the classroom and Sweden's torn up its digital charter and is going back to books, paper and pen. It's happening all over the world. In countries like East Asia, who have the best education systems in the world, they've never been very keen on tech. I mean, Bill Gates himself said that devices have a terrible record in the classroom. I'm anxious and frustrated that Britain is still drinking the tech Kool-Aid, thinking that digital learning is progressive and shiny, and it's actually being proved to be the very opposite. I think what people might consider as a bit hidebound and a bit fusty is actually far more effective. There's a school called the Waldorf School Peninsula in California, where all the Silicon Valley, Google, Microsoft guys send their children, and it's pretty much tech-free. And those kind of schools are going crazy on the West Coast. And the schools I've visited personally, I've now been to a a lot of schools in my capacity as a patron of an education charity. The schools I've gone where tech is used with extreme caution are simply more effective. The lessons are more exciting. The children do better. They're calmer. They're happier. They're more engaged. I think it's miserable to learn on a screen just from a sort of, you know, pastoral point of view. It's boring and it's bleak. Even though it's sold as super engaging and super exciting, it's really not. And the shine wears off very quickly. I think it's particularly pernicious with children because these sort of learning apps are sort of trussed up to be full of exciting animals and cakes and balloons. And it's so bad for the child's brain to get used to, you know, a cake exploding into balloons if he gets one plus one right. That's not a good pattern for a brain to get in. It's just you know, paving the way for the dopamine addiction that happens to them a little bit later. Now, a lot of mothers, a lot of fathers will feel exactly these instincts, Sophie, and yet tech has just been a tsunami of tech into our schools. Kids with smartphones will come onto that. Everybody's screen-based the whole time rather than looking at a teacher and learning from a teacher. And you recently wrote in Politics Home about this issue and you cited evidence from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, one of the top foremost medical universities in the world. And a study there said, quotes, there's clear scientific evidence that digital tools, screen-based learning, in other words, impair rather than enhance student learning. Why do you feel that so viscerally, Sophie, as a mum and now as a campaigner? 
I feel it because I've had so much evidence. I mean, initially in lockdown, trying to get two girls interested, you know, in gazing at a screen from nine to four, it didn't even work for half an hour. And they're not complete nutters. I mean, they're they're sort of fairly average children who it should have been possible to do it with. And it's a superficial, stressful, irritating and somnolent way of learning. It was obvious that this was not effective and they'd actually have just been better off going off and reading the whole works of Enid Blyton. It would have been better for their education simply to read and have walks. So what's driving this in your experience? Is it the big contracts, the fact that we're selling a lot of kit, governments are buying lots of kit, local authorities? Is it teachers wanting the convenience of digital learning, Paris the Thought? Yes, I think it's all of those things. I think something has happened where a lot of private companies have flogged a huge amount of ed tech products into the classroom, saying it was all in the name of, you know, lockdown and this is what's happening now and this is where the future is. And it really isn't where the future is. And the clever countries are getting out of this quickly. And I understand it's very hard for Britain. We've spent millions on tech products and digital learning but we've got to have the balls to row back now because it's not working and it's just wrecking children's ability to focus and it's a much shallower discipline for example just writing an essay on a laptop where you can cut and paste you can get a load of stuff from the internet it's that's not a difficult exercise if you have to read books and you have to write the sodding thing out by hand in a rough draft and then write it out again you know in lovely handwriting on a piece of paper that's a proper discipline and you will remember what you've learnt you really won't if you've been clicking and cutting and pasting on a screen You also are writing and talking to lots of people about the harmful, as you see, the harmful impact of social media in general and smartphones in general on under 16s. What can we do about that? There's lots of sort of very exciting grassroots movements happening around Britain of parents saying, this is enough, I can't rely on the government clearly to do anything. So we're going to, as a community, cut back on this rubbish. But these movements are still a little bit limited in that you don't know where your child's going to go to secondary school. Not everyone might be on board. And I think something needs to happen from higher up. I don't know how anyone can defend social media and smartphone use for under 16s. And when people say, you know, I want to know my child's safe, there are brick phones that call and text. If you really want to know where your child is every second of the day, you can put a little tracker in his trainer. Why do they need anything other than to call and text each other? Why do children need anything more? I don't understand it. There's only downside. Teenagers cannot concentrate on anything anymore. And also, I feel like I know a little bit because I have visited a lot of schools now. And I always that noisy old woman who says, how would you be without social media? I just go up to them and I say it. And I haven't had a single teenager say they'd miss it. And teenagers are herd animals. So they do what their friends do. And if we took this crap away from them, they'd be so much happier and they'd sleep better. They would do better academically. They'd be healthier. I just feel very strongly about it. And it's been disappointing to see children's charities shying away from the idea of a social media ban, saying, let's just assume big tech will respond to the online safety bill measures. I mean, really? And will those measures, whenever they emerge, really prevent this tsunami of damage? I'm not at all sure it will be strong enough. There's also been talk of children's rights being infringed by the ban, and I'm really confused by that. Surely a child's principal right is to be safe and to be looked after. 
So that doesn't really stand up to me. Just in a nutshell, tell Planet Normal listeners what TikTok is. British kids are now using TikTok for an hour or two a day. It's invented by the Chinese, but the Chinese themselves have been severely restricting its use, right? Yes, they don't let teenagers on it anymore because they're not doing well enough at school. It's very ironic. Anyway, this is the problem with all these things. They're all short form, rapid fire videos. It can be a sort of cat falling downstairs or it can be a beauty hack or it can be something political, which is very, very dangerous. It's basically very, very, very short videos and memes and they're usually totally pointless or they're quite pernicious. I mean, they're utter junk filling our children's brains. They're a total waste of time, most of them. We have seen, Sophie, the suicide rate, haven't we, for 15 to 19-year-olds pretty much doubling for boys in the UK since 2010 and going up even more for girls. Do you think that's social media? Yes, without a doubt. There are forensic chartings of when teenagers started having smartphones and the rates of anxiety, depression, self-harm, anorexia, suicide. It's absolutely mirror image symmetry. I get disappointed in people I used to think were sort of titans of children's rights, not being very on side on this. Oh, it's up to the companies to stop making their products so addictive. That's so naive. It's unbelievable. Of course, these billion dollar companies aren't going to stop making their products utterly addictive. We've got to take the reins and not let our children's emotional and neurological well-being be compromised. And it is neurological as well. They can't focus on anything more. And Johan Hari's book, Stolen Focus, is very good on that as well. You're taking on huge vested interests here, Sophie, the tech giants themselves. You're also taking on teenage kids with their fear of missing out, FOMO. A lot of parents would say, you can't deny your kids social media because then you're denying them a lot of a modern childhood. They'll be completely cut out from a lot of their social groups. Yes, exactly. So that's why we have to wipe it out for all of them. Then they can just simply text each other or call each other and have a phone call at night instead of going down endless rabbit holes, you know, comparing themselves to their friends, not getting likes on their stupid posts, meeting utter weirdos online. None of this stuff has an upside. And I want people to come together and say, let's get rid of this for every child in Britain that it's, it's damaging all of them. I want lots of voices coming into the choir now. It's time to stand up and sing. What's that song from Les Miserables? What's the sort of powerful? Do you hear the people sing? It's time for oh, that. Yeah. It really is. It's enough. There are, no, there are no upsides. Brick phones do everything children need. They do everything. They do everything. They don't need anything else. Talking about brick phones, here's a transition for you. Peep Show started in 2003. It ran till 2015. Channel 4's longest ever running comedy. It was a cult series. It is a cult series. How did it feel like at the time, Sophie, to be part of Peep Show? Did you understand how big it was going to be? I could tell the writing was of an exceptional quality. It was extremely peculiar looking into a camera instead of another actor's face. That took some getting used to. Because that's where the name of the, the, the show came from, right? These point of view shots, uh, the voicing over of internal thoughts of the various characters, particularly David Mitchell's Mark Corrigan, who really was a weirdo. But then again, he called you a mental posho. How did that feel? He called my character a mental posho, posho Liam. There's a difference. <laughs> it's a joy to be part of something that makes people happy. I'm luckily extremely 
unfamous English men can't get enough of peep show. It's so sweet. And I, I never have anything negative. It's just people bounding up like kangaroos saying, oh, Big Sue's. It's very, very sweet. It's, it's nice to be part of a comedy because, you know, they make people happy and I want people to be happy. You've done a lot of theatre, of course. You do a lot of radio plays. You recently starred in Wonka again with Olivia Coleman, a kind of prequel to the Gene Wilder classic of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory from the 60s. And Hugh Grant as a 12-inch high Oompa Loompa. Sorry to bring things back to screens, Liam. Don't be cross with me. But Hugh Grant is also on side about this stuff. Sorry, Liam, don't get cross with me. I'll give you some acty gossip in a minute. But he <laughs> believes that screens are bad for children educationally and emotionally. So get him on board too. Yes, Wonka was huge fun. Acting's a patchwork quilt of different experiences and it's a joy. You go on set with people you've never met before. You're usually on location. You become very close very quickly. And it's like being on a sort of camping holiday for three months. You become a completely different character, which is quite therapeutic, actually. <laughs> I love the mix of ages. On one of my previous jobs about two years ago, Sanderton, um, which was for ITV, lovely period drama, it was the most heavenly group of people. And I usually had lunch with Be James Bolam, who's 87. Wow, from The Likely Lads. Exactly. And an actress called Flora, who was nine. So I had a nine-year-old and an 87-year-old as my lunching companions. It's one of the great joys of acting. It brings lots of different people and ages together. And you've also got the singing string to your bow. I, I recently learnt a while ago, with the help of ENO soprano Sarah Tynan, you actually performed Quando Menvo from La Boheme in central London. You had to learn it pretty sharpish. You're not a professional singer. It was terrifying, but I do really love singing. I think the next thing I want to do, I want to be in a musical. I really do. I love musicals. I love singing. Now, in 2009, in the middle of Peep Show, Big Sue's, she went royal. You married Freddie Windsor, of course. Freddie's father, Prince Michael of Kent, is, of course, first cousin to the late Queen. It must be quite a difficult time in the royal family at the moment. I know you don't like to talk about it too much, but you do know the King well. And obviously, there's been an announcement about him recently. I'm very sad about the news about the King. He's, as everyone knows, he's an incredibly hardworking, passionate, brilliant man. And we need him. This country needs him. I've learned so much about what he's done since being friends with him. I mean, the Prince's Trust has done more for unlucky young people than any government scheme, you know, all of them put together. It's a massive triumph, not to mention all his environmental work and architectural protection, all sorts of things. He's a polymath. And I, with the rest of the country and the rest of the world, just wish him well. I know it's an odd thing to say that he's a very strong, fit man apart from the cancer, but he is, so I'm sure he'll slay it. And Sophie, tell us finally, just how determined you are to highlight these issues as a mum, the profile that you have as an actor, and I know it's not something you, that you caught. I've known you for some time. It's not really your style to seek fame, but you do have a profile. So how do you intend to use it for these causes? Ironically, I'm not on any social media. There are a whole genus of actors who simply love acting and they don't really want the other side of it. So I've never done the social media thing. I have a lot of friends who are exactly the same. We hop from job to job and have a very low profile and it's lovely. And this is the first time in my life that I've sort of popped my daft head above the parapet to say something 
very bad is going on here. And I think it's not just the recent deaths of Brianna Gay and Mia Janin that, that are, you know, yelling to us that something is very rotten in the state of things in childhoods. It's so obvious. It's bad for children emotionally. It's bad for their brains. It's bad for their sleep. It's bad for their health. It's awful for teachers trying to teach children who are texting each other and they can't concentrate anymore anyway. And we've got to protect our future generation. We've got to look after them. Liberals panic about banning things and they shouldn't. They should just forget about it, this being a political thing. It's a child welfare issue. Yeah, annoyingly, I am going to pour more energy and battery into this. And I'm going to sort of hold hands with the other mothers, teachers, medics, MPs who are being strong as well. And I really hope we can make some change. Well, Sophie Winkleman, I'm sure a lot of citizens of Planet Normal are fully behind your campaign. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you very much, Liam. So there you have it, Alison. Sophie Winkleman, a.k.a. Big Sue's, Cambridge-educated, distinguished actor, and I would say now pretty formidable campaigner. She's taking on a huge vested interest, but others are really lining up alongside her. Us for them, who we know well, of course, Molly Kingsley, formidable lady, Ian Duncan Smith's crowd at the Centre for Social Justice. There are a lot of people tapping into parents' natural concerns at just how quickly tech has overtaken the education and the lives of our young people. And what is the impact of that on their precious young minds? Well, I'm so glad that Sophie is sticking her, what did she say, her daft head. Above the parapet. Not terribly daft, is she? She's obviously highly, highly intelligent and articulate and how marvellous that she is lending her position and her luster to this cause. Now, I'm going to say something, Liam, and I mean this. I think this is quite probably the most, one of, if not the most important issue in the world. Well, that's it. It's decided if if you back it and Big (laughs) Sue's backs it, I mean... What chance has Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates and the sort of global tech titans? God, the S and P five hundred has just crashed. The tech stocks—they're all—they're all reeling in fear. But as Sophie said, anybody can see it, Liam. And the other thing I'm going to say is, why isn't this higher up the list of government priorities? Because it's children and it's teenagers, and they don't vote and they don't have any money, so they're not worth a politician's time. And I could talk about this for hours. I've mentioned it in novels. It is absolutely without doubt. We heard Sophie Winkleman saying the top tech guys in California, they are sending their own children to schools with books and pens and paper. What does that tell you? Now, there are multiple studies telling us that One of the guys who designed some of this stuff, he said that the pull to refresh mode on all our screens, that was inspired by slot machines and casino games, all right? And that's been weaponized by social media platforms. And it is designed to create addiction and the brains of children, the developing brains of small people and teenagers are soft and they are perfect for imprinting that addiction on them. And the list of things that Sophie was talking about, digital learning, cognitive and emotional regulation. If you've been in the room, Liam, 
trying to get an eight-year-old boy off FIFA or one of these games, you are up against a beast. They are addicted. Five more minutes, five more minutes, mummy, five more minutes. It's horrible. And when I have seen uh, articles about this and you go into the comments and these smug people say, it's all to do with bad parenting. Of course, you can take your child off this. You think, no, you can't because it is their world. This, their entire world is made of this stuff. And for the parent, many parents know it causes depression, stress, social anxiety, impairs cognitive function, creates impulsivity, tantrums, bad moods. I've lived with it, Liam. My children are older now. My son said to me the other day, they say devote 10,000 hours to a skill you want to really be good at. And my son said to me, I did 10,000 hours on FIFA and I'm brilliant on it. What a waste of time. All right. So what Sophie is talking about here is we absolutely need a ban on social media for children. When we were growing up, Liam, when I was growing up, you were with the peer group in the day. You went home, however bad or difficult your family was, you were with your family. You were just you. The peer group now follows them into the home. There is no escape for these teenagers. And we are seeing massive dysfunction and stress, not to mention the Brianna Gay case, where one of her killers had been inspired to grotesque fantasies by being on the dark web. So I'm sure you can hear, as I could hear in Sophie's voice, passion, frustration, the whirlwind we're going to reap with these young people is going to be like nothing we've seen. We need to give them their childhoods back. And I'm just going to end, Liam, by saying a few years ago, my kids, they're in their 20s now, and they said, mummy, your generation put us in a room threw in a few hand grenades and said, go on, play with that. That's what we did to them. All right. It's absolutely terrible. And my generation had no idea about the addictive power of these things and how it would cause them to have so many mental health problems. Look at the stats. Look at the stats of mental health, OCD, ADHD. Where do we think these things come from? Why is this the most screwed up generation in history? It is social media and phones. Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love to read your thoughts. We learn so much from you, the citizens of Planet Normal. This is a fantastic week, Liam. We've got some of our absolute favourite contributors. Listeners, of course, will remember the great Robert Styler. Dear Alison and Liam, I hope you remember me, Robert, still missing Josephine. He says, Planet Normal listeners will remember that we campaigned, didn't we, Liam? So Robert could go into Josephine's care home. And indeed, they had one last dinner and dance together during the immensely cruel lockdown. Robert says, I'm just about to reach my 87th birthday and despair more than ever what is happening to our great country. I'm asking you and Planet Normal to turn up the power on the major issues, which are and will increasingly devastate all our lives, excluding the next socialist government for now. And things that Robert picks out, one, zero net carbon as planned will impoverish the whole nation for virtually no gain. Two, immigration, it's blindingly obvious, is a disaster to everyone who matters. Three, 
the absolutely disastrous and short-sighted energy policies shame every administration for the past 50 years. Four, will someone come clean on the efficacy of heat pumps for 85% of the UK houses? They are a long, long way from being a solution, even if the public can afford them. I'm just remembering, Liam, that Robert founded an engineering company, so he knows what he's talking about. Finally, we don't want blunderbuss Boris Johnson back. He was a failure, says Robert. It's no good declaring that he was instinctively against depriving the nation of its freedoms. That's not leadership. That's cowardice. It's a good job Winston Churchill didn't succumb to the pounding overtures of Lord Halifax and his cohort of upper-class fascists. Otherwise, we'd all be speaking German today. No, no, no to Boris. The three years of his administration with lockdown, furlough and working from home did more harm to the British economy than any period since the end of the war, including Harold Wilson's. The Conservative government cannot be saved until we have a change of leadership, says Robert. And that has to be a woman with the status and courage of Margaret Thatcher. I think we know who that is, don't we? Well, few tough ladies in the frame, Robert. I expect we're thinking about the same one. She begin with KB. With my very best wishes to you all, Robert Styler. And Robert, we're wishing you a fantastic 87th birthday. We'll never forget you. And Bob the Bard is back. Hey! Bob the Bard, Planet Normal's resident poet, not his real name. He's a multiple mug winner. <laughs> He's had to build an extension in his house. He's got so many Planet Normal mugs. He's got more Planet Normal mugs than we have. <laughs> Dear Planet Normal, says Bob the Bard, the armed forces recruitment fiasco demonstrates the folly of replacing equality of opportunity with equality of outcome. While it's shameful that this has happened under a Conservative government, I fear things could get even worse under Labour. Thanks again to Planet Normal, our last line of defence against the forces of wokery. And this is your country doesn't need you (laughs) with apologies to Lord Kitchener. So we can all imagine that poster with the finger and the <laughs> eyes that follow you around the room and points to you wherever you are. <laughs> Your country doesn't need you to volunteer to fight. That's what they're telling young men now who happen to be white. This policy is racist and illogical to boot. They turn away good candidates, then moan they can't recruit. It's all about diversity, the obsession of the woke, and it's turning our armed forces into something of a joke. Let's hope that future conflicts won't need battle-hardened ranks, but gender-neutral pronouns and rainbow-coloured tanks. (laughs) We can't afford this nonsense. Defence is not a game. And those who cause this madness should hang their heads in shame. It's a Bob the Bard classic. There it is. Fantastic. Really good. Spot on. And on that same theme, actually, Bob, John says... I am ex-forces and would never let my children join up to put their lives on the line for a country that despises them and with a large number of fellow citizens who would actually cheer if they were killed. No chance. Fight your own battles. And that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, it's my turn, and it's Robert Styler. Hooray! Robert, send us your address in an email. Put mug winner in the subject heading to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. If you enjoy Planet Normal, jolly well hope you do. We put a lot of effort into it, the team here. Please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. They don't half cheer us up in the long, dark reaches of this endless winter. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth, comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. 
Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. Stick to the plan. It's goodbye from him. (laughs) 